0: From Los Angeles, California, this is BurnCast, and I'm the bomb. Happy Tutu Tuesday, and welcome to BurnCast. In today's episode, we speak to David Silverman, the director of the upcoming Simpsons movie set to be released this Friday. But first, as always, the BurnCast Community Bulletin Board. First up on the BurnCast Community Bulletin Board is some feedback we've received from some of our listeners as a result of the burning backlash on the John Law Was Right topic that was posted on the Burning Man Tribe on tribe.net. Our first caller, Ranger Part-Time, called in from Hilo, Hawaii to give us this message.
1: God, Burners, hey. um, This is Ranger Part-Time. How many times have you walked through center camp and seen gratuitous promotion of uh, all kind of artistic stuff sort of people's business cards all kind of shit laying around all over the place I find it kind of ironic that people are uh, getting tweaked about this pavilion thing when there's uh, gratuitous promotion of people's things all over the place out there on the playa And if you don't like it ignore it go have a good time enjoy yourself it's not worth uh, uh, getting tweaked about. Enjoy, enjoy, enjoy. Love y'all. Bye.
0: Mahalo, Ranger Part-Time, and thanks for calling in. Now here's another message from a listener who also hails from Hawaii, but is now living in San Francisco. Let's listen.
2: Hi, this is Nicole, a.k.a. Technopatra, and I'm calling in response to all the fear that's happening over the Green Man civilian at Bernie Man this year. I find it deliciously ironic that many of the same people who are freaking out in an end-of-days kind of way over the green civilians, are freaking out in the overjoyed way over 7-Eleven becoming a clicky mart from souvenir shop. And the claim that these people are opposed to consumerist culture, the Simpsons franchise is somehow an exception. Everyone had their hypocriticos for breakfast this morning? Please, seriously, how is it walking your talk? by consuming overpriced, overprocessed food-like snacks and sweatshop souvenirs, but protesting loudly against responsible companies, introducing green technologies to inspire further collaboration, and, well, you know, the saving of the earth as a viable home for us all. Am I really the only one who sees the Quickie Mart as a disgusting display of commercialized pop culture that it is? It's a movie promotion for Christ's sake. But if you want to like it, want to buy those crappy pink donuts, Fine. Just don't pretend you hate corporations. You clearly love Fox TV and all their country-damaging propaganda because you're lining their pockets with your hard-earned cash. Go smoke some cigarettes and eat some high-fructose corn sweetener while you're at it. Oh, wait, you're already doing that because of the pink donuts. Since you love the Republicans so much, yes, Virginia, buying Simpsons merchandise supports the neocon Republican Party agenda. And here's how. Yes, while many of the shows include good progressive messages about women's rights, gay rights, vegetarianism, organic farming, the evils of tobacco, the benefits of expressing individuality and tolerance in general, but while it's usually smart enough and funny enough to make you feel like The Simpsons is somehow on your side, the sad fact is that any money for them is money for the Fox Network. Maintainers of Fox News the most disgustingly partisan propagandistic tool in our country's history. The same is true for most of the Joss Whedon shows I love so much. Suffy and Angel and Firefly, all the canceled ones. So I'm not saying I'm any better than you. I also buy into the Fox propaganda. My point is just that commercialism is a fact of our existence, and we have to pick and choose our battles. So why can't we support good enterprises when they come along, especially when they're participating in responsible discourse, like the Green Man Civilian and the companies that have been invited to join them there, rather than selling crap that hurts your body and soul, or is it buying the crap that hurts your body and soul? Thank you for your time.
0: Mahalo Nui Loa Technopatra for taking the time to call in and let us know what you think. At this time, BurnCast would like to invite all our listeners, yes that means you, to call in and share with us your thoughts, feelings, rants, or raves as we roll into the next few weeks leading up to Burning Man. Feel free to call the BurnCast hotline at 775-363-5861 or click on the MyChingo voice recorder at our website, burncast.net. Second up on the BurnCast Community Bulletin Board is a comment by O Tony about diversity on the playa. His piece is entitled, Burning Man, O Brothers Where Art Thou?
3: Not too long ago, I was showing a friend who had never been to Burning Man some of the pictures I had taken there. After flipping through the pictures on my computer, he turned to me and said, What, were you like the only black guy there? you don't see a lot of black people at burning man and as an african-american man i've often been asked why that is well it's the same reason that you don't see a lot of white people watching BET. it's not for us no one has ever asked me hey tony what do you think it is you don't see a lot of black people at nascar races the thing is People seem to think that Burning Man is, or should be, different. That Burning Man is a place where race, social, or financial standing don't matter. A place where, to paraphrase Rodney, we can all just get along. But let's face it, Burning Man doesn't have a lot of pool with the black folks. First of all, you got your desert. Go ahead and try to think of a big event with a lot of black people in a desert. And no, the Iraq war doesn't count. No, black people, with the exception of the ones that actually live in North Africa, don't like deserts. Hell, the last time you had a whole lot of black folks together in a desert, they made us build a bunch of dope ass pyramids, then didn't let us live in them. On the contrary, as far as we're concerned, the only benefit of the slave trade to African-Americans was the eventual invention of air conditioning. Then there's the dust. If you want to piss a black guy off, talk about his mama. But if you really want to piss him off, tell him that his skin looks ashy. See, when black skin gets dry, it develops an ashy look. And when it's bad, you can actually take your fingernail and write on your skin. On the playa, white people look dusty, black people look ashy. Then of course, there is the music. People sometimes tell me, wow, I wish there was a camp around here that spins hip hop. No, no you don't. Music camps at Burning Man are just like clubs in the default world. The goal is to get as many people dancing as possible. Now if Burners really wanted to hear hip-hop, then camps would have DJs who would spin hip-hop. But they don't. So they don't. Besides, hip-hop is a bummer. I mean it has... lyrics. What's up with that? Sometimes the songs talk about things that aren't nice. And when you're trying to get your role going, hearing a song about some bitch getting slapped is a real buzzkill. On the other hand, techno is like kryptonite to most black folks. Given a choice between listening to techno and listening to country western, most black people will choose country western. Because at least with country western, there's still a possibility of hearing a song about some bitch getting slapped. But the main reason you don't see black people at Burning Man is there are no black people at Burning Man. Let me explain. A lot of people seem to think that Burning Man is this. Alternative society where it doesn't matter who you are or what you look like. I don't. See, to me, Burning Man is simply a mirror of the default world. A warped, distorted, fucked up carnival mirror, but a mirror nonetheless. A loony looking glass that we never quite step through. Wealthy burners trade their beautiful homes for beautiful RVs. Slightly shaky personal relationships explode into the dusty warfare of the heart. Hotties look hotter, lonesome folks feel more alone, and most of the people we hang out with on the playa are the same ones we hang out with in the default world. Except they're naked. Remember, Burning Man started in and is run from San Francisco. A lot of Burners are part of the tech community. As someone who has worked for a big computer company and visited their campus in Cupertino many times, I can tell you that I didn't see very many black people there either, except for the security guards. Now, ask yourself, how did you end up going to Burning Man? For almost everyone, the answer starts with, well, I had these friends who went and... There, you see what I mean? It's almost like the old shampoo commercial. I went to Burning Man and told two white friends about it, and they told two white friends, and they told two white friends, and so on. Aha, you say, but Tony, you're black and you go to Burning Man. Yes, I admit, I and several others of us are exceptions to the rule. But try this the next time you're at Burning Man, find a black person and ask them actually fuck that that could take all week so just take my word for it most black people at Burning Man don't hang out with black people in the default world either we are weirdos freaks black people don't like weirdos black people go to church more than white people do black people generally try to keep a low profile why would a normal black person want to go to an event with 40,000 white people in a desert An event that culminates in all 40,000 of those people yelling, screaming, and chanting while a huge, almost cruciform figure is burned in an immense bonfire. It looks like a hippie clan meeting. Oh yeah, let's not forget about the church burning on Sunday night. Now, if I sound angry or depressed about the lack of color on the playa, I'm not. I still love going to Burning Man and I will be there again this year. Because if I am a freak, then everyone else out there is too. And that is what we have in common with everyone else in Black Rock City. For one week, I will embrace my dusty, ashy skin, secure in the knowledge that no one will give me shit for it. For one week, I will dance all night to house, then breaks, then side trance until the sun rises. For one week, we will all be one color, gray. And on Saturday night, I will watch the man burn and I will not freak out. Okay, maybe just a little bit. I'm Tony Edwards, and that's what I'm thinking.
0: Thanks, oh, Tony. Whether you're black, brown, white, Playa Gray, Simpsons Yellow, or Gumby Green, I think we all can agree that Burning Man, though not as diverse as it could be, is still a beautiful community of creativity and that, in the words of Larry Harvey, communities are not produced by sentiment or mere goodwill. They grow out of shared struggle. Our situation in the desert is an incubator for community. That's a wrap for the BurnCast Community Bulletin Board. Remember, BurnCast is an independent podcast produced by Burners for Burners. It is a gift to the community and, in a way, is a year-long theme camp out in the World Wide Web. Though it's entirely free to download, BurnCast is not free to produce, so if you can help us out, click on the support tab at our website, BurnCast.net, and learn about the dozen ways in which you can help us out. Since this episode is extended, let's get to it. <coughs> Today our guest is David Silverman, the animator and supervising director of the Simpsons television series and now director of the upcoming Simpsons movie. He's been coming to Burning Man for the past seven years and performs as Tubatron in the Phoenix Project, which is one of the premier fire troops to come out of Los Angeles. In this segment, we'll hear David share about the early days of his involvement with the Simpsons, how the art of animation is a collaborative one, and we will also learn a little bit about his folks. But before we begin, David is subject to a little pop quiz and a fast, hard sell. Let's listen. David, I don't know if you remember this.
4: Yeah, maybe.
0: You were the third person I ever massaged professionally.
4: Hot dog, really? Seriously, you mean back in the day?
0: Back in the day, yeah. One classy,
4: oh. classy chupo.
0: Yep, Julia Kim got me on board, and my first day, I met the first person I massaged was Alan Smart. Oh, wow.
4: <laughs> <laughs> and, well, that, folks, that takes us back a couple of years. So <laughs> hope we're not boring you, but uh, yes, we've uh, we've had <laughs> a lot of backs have been rubbed in the interim. I understand.
0: There's yeah. something I wanted to ask you. Yes. When you were getting the massage, yes, you timed me. You sat down, you got on my massage chair, you went like, you know, you put your face in the face yeah. cradle, and you went like that, and you set your stopwatch, and you were like, go. And you timed the 10-minute massage.
4: Uh, I did.
0: So now here's my question. <laughs> How was the massage?
4: It was very good. To this day, I remember it. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, absolute God's honest truth.
0: (laughs) So when do you want to book another appointment?
4: (laughs) Uh, Any time you like. It has to be 10 minutes. One minute longer.
0: (laughs) Okay. So how and when did you get involved with The Simpsons? What year was it and all that kind of jazz? It was
4: 1987. I just finished working on a film called One Crazy Summer that had 10 minutes of animation in it. And Bill Kopp directed the animation. It was a Steve Holland directed movie, live action with the animation. And Wes Archer was one of the uh, animators. And um, Wes had worked for a small company called Klasky Chupo, a very small company yep. at the time. Mm-hmm. So we, we uh, uh, so the tr- Klasky Chupo got the Tracy Ullman Show contract. And all Wes had known about it was that it would be animating um, Matt Groening's work, which we assumed would be Life in Hell. And that sounded great. Uh, and this is at a time that I was going to quit animation. And go into uh, illustration, commercial illustration. Uh, and just well quit is a strong word. I was going to devote the entire year not working because I'd saved up enough, uh, enough money and just work on my portfolio. And that was my plan. And by God, I didn't stick to it because this opportunity came up. And I thought, well, that'd be, it'd be fun to do. I didn't think it was going to last very long, a couple of weeks or something like that. And, and so it happened. And we started working around uh, March uh, 11th of 1987. And uh, we were alternating between animating work of Matt Groening and work of M.K. Brown, something called Dr. Janice Nkodatu, which didn't last very long. I think it was only on the Tracy Owen Show about seven times before they yanked it. So we started animating The Simpsons, I think, on March 24th, 1987, and that's how the whole thing started. And I was an animator on the Tracy Ullman show. Myself, Wes Archer, and Bill Cobb, and then it was just me and Wes Archer. Bill went on to follow his own uh, dreams.
0: Well, didn't you say that uh, that Matt Grady he did Life in Hell, right? You were going to animate those, or you were thinking? Well, of-
4: I, I wasn't. I wasn't privy to those conversations. Oh, okay. I mean, I get all, it. all we all we knew is that oh, we're going to do the Simpsons. And Oh, we just assumed that Matt had come up with a new idea for it I mean I later found out that he didn't want to share the copyright of life in hell with Fox and that was what he would have to do so that's why I came up with the Simpsons <laughs> but I, well, we only found out about that later remember we, we we were working at Klaski Chupo 20th Century Fox was down on Pico we're all the way over uh, you know on Seward and uh, Melrose so you know Matt, came, Matt Matt came by at the beginning you know well I mean Matt came by every week basically but as far as the, <laughs> the evolution of that, that is for, you know, look it up on Wikipedia.
0: Now, you and Mark Kirkland are like the longest-running directors on the show. You guys have been there since the beginning. Is that right?
4: Well, uh, yes and no. Mark actually came in the second season. Mark, uh, of the first season was myself, Wes Archer, uh, Rich Moore primarily, and Brad Bird did an episode, and Greg Vanzo did an episode. And uh, the second season, we expanded. The, it was going to be myself. Rich Moore, uh, Wes Archer, and two more people. We got Jim Reardon and Mark Kirkland. And uh, so from the second season, Mark has been involved. So you are
0: the oldest veteran on the show, is that
4: right? Uh, I, yes, because I've been there since the very, very beginning, 1987. Wow. And the show started in the uh, April of 1989. And the first thing I did for the show, interesting enough, was the title sequence. Uh, Wes was, but Wes basically worked on the character turnarounds, like sort of mm-hmm. solidifying the, the final model sheets on the characters. And I was given the task of designing the middle t- title sequence, working with uh, Matt Groening and Sam Simon, working on what the jokes that they were pitching, and, and then I came up with the, sort of the the, the the way to go with it.
0: Wow, so that must have been really fun. So... In the time that you've been with The Simpsons, what kind of changes have you seen?
4: Oh, just evolution. You know, just an evolutionary process. Like any animation, uh, changes happen as the characters, you become used to the characters. Uh, You know, um, the Mickey Mouse in the old days looks a lot different. Bugs Bunny in the old days, yes, you're wearing Mickey Mouse right now. That's old Mickey. So he changed, and as the animators became more comfortable and they decided, you know, Same thing happened in a very fast way. In many ways, I would say the first season of the show, we were trying to get everybody drawing the way Wes and I had drawn the characters. And it really took the first season to get people up to speed in many respects. And the second season, it improved. And then the third season, we started developing different ways. And then it's just sort of like unconscious. You just... Somebody animates something, oh, that's really great. That's a nice uh, a way to, to solve that situation. Or somebody draws a character in a way that, oh, that's a, that's a great solution for that expression. And that I hadn't thought of doing that angle in quite that way. So you learn as you go. And also as the writing became more, basically we, we kept fueling each other. There's, the animation, certain times, became more elaborate because something really tickled our fancy. And we'd be like, spend a lot of time animating this sequence. And that would inspire the writers to make more... Uh, sequences like that, you know, and, you know, we would do more and more, and the writers would get more inspired by what they saw in terms of the animation coming back, and they they push it, and we'd push it. So, a lot of that kept happening from season to season, and I think still keeps going. It's not a one-up machine, it's just sort of like do something different, you know, because mm-hmm. they are always trying to imp- surprise ourselves visually and in, in terms of the writing.
0: That's great. That must be, like, just challenging and fun and, yep. yeah, collaborative.
4: Yep. Yep. As uh, I remember one time, I thought, uh, when, I, when I went to, um, we'll probably talk about this in a second, but when I went to, uh, to uh, uh, DreamWorks and then Pixar, Jim Reardon took over my position as supervising director. And Jim had a great line. I don't know if I asked him, somebody said, well, this was, you know, was this episode, was it a hard one or not too hard? And Jim said, they're all hard. <laughs> and
0: that's true. Even yeah.
4: ones that are not as complex, every episode is hard, only because in many ways, not only the work that you have, but I think every director just puts it on himself or herself that, you know, we're going to do a great job on this. And you just, you work hard on it because you, you're you sort of inspired to do good work. The scripts are inspiring and that inspires the animators and the especially the animation directors to do good work.
0: Since you thought you were going to step away from animation, how has all these years working on The Simpsons, how have you evolved?
4: Well, it's very interesting, um, right? Because I, 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 thought I was going to separate away from Animation Eighty Seven, and then I spent the next two years animating like constantly because we, we, had to, Wes and I had to crank out those uh, Tracy Allman shorts in in a week, and I was anywhere from four to six hundred drawings. You know, and some of the drawings are just like mouth shapes and things like that. But you know, it was only two of us, mm-hmm. and, uh, and and the and yeah, yeah, it was just two of us animating. After Bill had left uh, in the first sort of round of, of episodes, but second round, there was only two of us, and we were doing our own cleanup and everything, and uh, Georgie Pelosi was painting them, and then and Bill Hedge was shooting them. And it was a very small crew. Yeah, it was a very intense animation. We were doing a lot of animation. And then when I started directing, it was a combination. I was doing much more... What I'm getting at is that the more and more that I started directing, the less animation I was doing. The more directing my animators, which, you know, is as it should be. Uh, at the beginning, it, it felt like out of ne- it was out of necessity. I, I didn't have... The talent wasn't up to speed yet. But as the years rolled on, the talent, you know, the, the other animators, you know, were getting uh, better people. and Those that were there were learning more. And so... I could step away from that and do more directing the animators rather than trying to animate everything. You know, occasionally I would animate a sequence and so forth. But I, to my mind, I started feeling I got to do more delegating in in this. Uh, to you know, I was doing more. I was drawing boards and things like that. I still was drawing, drawing characters. But as far as like all the animation and so forth, I find that now that I rely on my animators to pull that off, as opposed to sort of animating for them. And there's no good or bad way of doing it, I suspect. But just, just sort of, you find what works works for you as a director, how you want to approach it. And I like if the talent is there. If I have really great talent, and what I mean by that is that animators are better than I am, and I'm a pretty good animator. But I mean, they're much better animators than I am. Paulie. Yeah, there you go. Uh, uh, but uh, my feeling is, I want to encourage them and, and you know engage their talents and let them take ownership of it too. That okay, I admitted this. Yes, Dave directed this and that. It's like if I'm directing live action, uh, I don't want to act out a scene for the actor. I want mm-hmm. the actor to bring to bring his or her talent and surprise to me. And same with the animator, you know. So I guess that's a way that I think I've evolved.
0: Talk to me about the collaborative process of animation.
4: Oh, it's a, its just a gigantic collaborative process. It has to be. There's so much, especially on the schedule we have on The Simpsons. There's so much to be done. Um, yes, the, the director does take the lead on it very much. So the director and the assistant director are probably the, the two most uh, important components of that. But you are collaborating with so many people. You have storyboard artists who are, you know, shape helping you shape the way the shots are going to be and the way the camera's going to work and so forth. You have designers, you have, you know, designing the backgrounds, designing the p- props, designing the characters, and then you have your animation team. For an episode it's typically like ten animators uh, and uh, two background artists uh, who are doing the backgrounds for every shot. You know, and then you're working with all the production people and getting your, your uh, vocal tracks read and broken down into to phonetics, and then there's a guy that Robin Anderson, who writes the, the mouth shapes. For
0: Robin you know. is still there?
4: Yeah, Robin oh, yeah. is still there. All grown up. Aww. For those of you who don't know, Robin Anderson is the son of Mike Anderson, who's a director, and Robin grew up to become basically what's called a lip-assigner. Oh, lip-assigning? What the heck's that? <laughs> well, you see, their lips move, and we have like 16 or 20 mouth shapes, and Robin listens to the track and decides what shapes to use. And then you have your, uh, uh, a timer, a timing director that helps you time the exposure sheets to time the animation. I mean, there's so many people involved. It's one giant collaboration. Yes. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's one great community. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. I didn't expect that, but there you
0: go. I wasn't trying to draw that out of you, but I did. <sighs> oh, come on now. Okay. <laughs> Is there anything you can tell us about the movie?
4: Uh, it'll be in color. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I would say I think actually Al Jean came up with a great line. Um, it's uh, basically a movie about that uh, encourages you to listen to your wife. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Not like Macbeth, though. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, no,
4: no, no. That would be a different. Well, that's a different. That's a that's a tragedy.
0: <laughs> <laughs> nice. Okay. And uh, did you have a good time working on it?
4: I had a wonderful time working on it. I mean, it was. It was a lot of effort and it was a lot of intensity um, and it was really quite interesting at times. I was trying to maintain like, you know, there's a lot of chaos going on, but I'm just trying to keep my head above the chaos and say, okay, it's over there. I, I see it. We're going over there. So uh, it, it, was, it was great. Uh, and I kept telling myself, you know, when, I was, when things would be really intense, we're working every single day. I just said, David, you better enjoy this. Otherwise, why did you get into the business in the first place?
0: All right, so The Simpsons have been around since
4: 1989? As a series, yes. Uh, We premiered as a series in December of 89.
0: Okay, and now it's 2007, and at some point The Simpsons are going to end.
4: No, maybe. they have to. Maybe. Well, maybe they will.
0: Well, and if, and if and when they do, what are you going to do? You must have thousands of ideas. Some of them are animation. Some of them are live action. Do you ever want to do live action? Oh, yeah.
4: I've toyed I've, I've t- I've t- with the notion of that. If I was to do live action, I would probably want to do something comedic, something fanciful. Maybe combines animation and live action. Or maybe has a lot of CG effects or something like that. I mean, to me, that you know, if may seem daunting to try as a live action film, but... Anime. I've been working anime, I've been in special effects, <laughs> animation is a special effect, it's complete contrivance, nothing exists, it's like a special effect, it's, it's, you, you make it out of, out of nothing, so um, that doesn't seem to be unreasonable, you know. if anything it seems easier because, oh, I have these actors here, they, they act them and we just shoot the camera, oh great, okay, we're done, we we'll don't have, we'll have to color and draw.
0: <laughs> okay, cool, I'm told that your dad is a right-wing Republican? That he was an aerospace engineer, um, and that you really like Prairie Home Companion.
4: Well, he's not a right right wing Republican because that's he's conservative Democrat. I would say.
0: Oh, okay. Different.
4: He's been voting Republican because he doesn't like the Democrats, but he still considers himself a conservative Democrat. In the he's, he, he considers himself an FDR liberal, <laughs> which has been re- evolved into basically conservative. Uh, he is not an aerospace engineer. He's, in fact, a professor in chemical and nuclear engineering. But he's uh, and well, I mean, but, but and he's got a great sense of humor. And he told me a lot about comedy. Oh, really? He was the one who introduced me to, when I was very young, to Charlie Chaplin, the Marx Brothers, and Buster Keaton. So the first film I remember seeing, in fact, was my parents taking me to see, I think I was six, and they took me to see a double feature. We were in New York at the time of The Gold Rush and Modern Times, Charlie Chaplin's feature films. And I seem to remember, I recall insisting on seeing it again, because I know to see it more than once at the time. So <clears throat> that's how I started out. And, 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 uh, and he was a he's a big Marx Brothers fan. And we saw, he showed me, we saw all the movies and we laughed like hell. And uh, We were living in Europe for a year. His, his work, he took a sabbatical, his work took him to Europe. Hey, I'm gonna say community so we can drink. Yeah, community.
0: community. How was the community in europe
4: <laughs> terrific mm-hmm. uh, and we uh, when we were in france we saw I saw my first Buster Keaton film, and it was just a great great thing so uh that's uh, I would say from him, I probably inherited my sense of humor, and from my mom, uh, I inherited uh artistic ability. she never really um, continued with it I remember she she's an art historian and she's long time been a a docent at the National Art Gallery in Washington, D.C., and she's a real, I mean, she got her M.A. at uh, Barnard in in art history. She knows everything about it. But uh, she was interested in fashion design, and I saw some of her drawings, you know, like uh, many years ago. I remember seeing her drawings in college, and I said, okay, well, that's where I get my drawing ability from. So I can piece it together from that.
1: That was
0: animator David Silverman, the director of the Simpsons movie. Coming up, David will share with us his experiences at Burning Man and go on a community drinking game bender. So let's talk about Burning Man.
4: My first knowledge of Burning Man actually came from one of the Simpson writers, uh, George Meyer. He had been to Burning Man, I think, in 1997 or 96, one of those two years, and that I think was the first time I had heard somebody speak of of, of it. And he told me about it. It's a sounded Amazing and uh, mysterious at the same time. This is sort of, you know, I wasn't too web savvy at the time he told me about it. Uh, so I, I didn't really look it up per se. And then um, one of the other, uh, one animator, uh, rather a board artist there, uh, Kevin O'Brien. Kevin, yeah. Yeah,
0: Kevin yeah. O'Brien.
4: He'd been there many times. And some other people I'd know So I'd known about it. And at the time.
0: Wasn't Bob Anderson going
4: too? Uh, yes, Bob had gone as well uh you're absolutely right and so so people from the simpsons had gone and um at the time that uh, i had- i had gone up to San francisco I was living in San francisco I was working at Pixar um and just uh finished uh, co-directing at monsters Inc and other people there there's a there's a one of the uh chief uh engineers at Pixar uh chief uh technical engineers is lauren carpenter Longtime burner i think he's been I don't know, it might be from the beginning. So I, I certainly, and a lot of people at Pixar are going so I knew about it, you know, and I had some vague knowledge of what it was about, but not very, very definite. And then my, uh, probably my oldest uh, friend here in, uh, in L.A., my dearest friend, Greg Press, he was dating uh, another married who's dating Anna, Anna Getty, and she was involved with this project called Confessions of a Burning Man. And it was just filming in uh, 2001, So I went up to uh, visit their sort of headquarters where they were putting the film together. And I met Paul Barnett, who was one of the co-directors on it. And I realized I had time. And I just sort of said, gee, this sounds great. Paul and I hit it off immediately. And I said, well, I I got a camera. If you want to need another cameraman, I'd be happy to join. And Paul said, oh, fine, we'd love to have you. And uh, I guess he assumed because I had been like directing animation for so long that I may have a pretty good eye with a camera, which I do, I'm pretty good. So that's how it happened. So I, I was co- I was already primed by my associations. People have gone there. That, okay, I, w- I definitely want to go there and see what it's all about. And then, and then you know, I looked, um, well, Paul really organized a great team of about 30 people who had never been to Burning Man. And that was sort of the point of the Confessions of Burning Man. None of us have been there. I think there was one person who had been there before and one of the producers had been there before. And help line up, you know, but Paul logistics. Aligned, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Help line log- log- logistics, so we knew who to be in touch with. And Paul was, of course, in touch with Larry Harvey and and made Marian because they needed to approve it and so forth. And explain what it was the idea behind the uh, confessions and so forth. So so we went, and that was my first introduction. And I, as I've told and I know that two thousand one was like one of the. In terms of weather conditions, it was probably one of the worst years, but, you know... Challenging. Challenging. Worse is, yes, such a negative term. Uh, (laughs) But we didn't know any different. We just... uh, It's like, well, okay. We're game. Uh, I had a great time. I really had a great time, and uh, that's that's how it all started.
0: What inspires you about Burning Man? What brings you back? I mean, after such a challenging year like that, why do you keep coming
4: back? There's something about the experience of Burning Man that confirms my suspicions on how I should lead my life. (laughs) And you how know, should you leave your life? Well, it's just, uh, you know what your Burning Man does, and it's, I'm sure people have said this, the thing about being a Burning Man is because there's so much, alien, there's two things, there's so much to see and experience, right? And because of the conditions, everything, you are very present. Because when you are getting up in the morning or you're doing this, the things that you take for granted when you're in these, the comforts of, of home, they take, you've you got to be just aware of it, right? because you're out in this sort of hostile, dry environment. Uh, and you have to be sort of more careful with everything, the way you dump your water and so forth and so on. You even have to be
0: conscious about yeah, what you're doing. Exactly. Yeah. Even if
4: you're an RV, because I've been in an RV too. But you got to be more conscious because about you know even if you're you're in an RV, okay, but you're going out. You got to prepare for it. You got to prepare like you got to really prepare for lotion and what you're going to wear, and how you can take care of your feet and blah 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 and all that sort of stuff. You know, and water and so on. So everything you do has a heightened sense of awareness and consciousness and you're very present. At least I find I am. I'm always very present. Because, okay, I'm doing this and I'm doing that. And it's all very much, I'm not taking anything for granted. And then you get out there and, there's, as I say, there's so much to do. Well, I want to do this. You know, I'm going to go do this thing. I'm going to do that thing. And the other thing I find is that there's so much you can do and choose not to do at Burning Man that uh, Burning Man is what it, you make of it. When people say, oh, this is a good burn or a bad burn or whatever, it's like, well, what do you mean it's a good or bad burn? Yeah, there's five square miles of real estate here, and everybody has all these different camps. There's, there's, there's hundreds of camps of different things to do and experience. Or different, uh, there's, there's thousands of people to have an experience with one way or the other. Uh, well, what do you mean? It's not like... Well, Larry Harvey and company do this and that. They, yeah, they set up a theme. They set up the man. There's a few other things they do, but that's about it. Everything else sort of just shows up, or you know, when mm-hmm. the art shows up, the people show up.
0: So, can, have you ever had a bad year? No. Have you had some years better oh. than others?
4: Oh yes, I've had some years better, than, and, I've, and yes, and you've had the, your so bad times at Burning Man. <laughs> yeah, so I was like, I wasn't like, oh, everything is fine. <laughs> no, yeah, I've had you know, I've had my times at Burning Man, and we all do. We have the I remember talking to Larry Harvey about it and we sort of concluded, either he said it or I said it, but, you know, when you go to Burning Man, you take your invisible suitcase with you and you unpack it, whether you like it or not. And so, you know, that's just something that you, everybody should be aware of when they go. Uh, yeah, I've had my share of bad times, but I knew that was part of the deal. That was the other thing, too. Is I, I find it, especially Burning Man, everything, everything in life, for sure, but it's, to my mind, everything's so heightened at Burning Man that everything happens for some reason. There's some uh, wisdom that we gain. By the good experience and by the bad, usually more by the bad experience. So, um, and in fact, I remember I, I've do stickers. I've tried to do stickers every year. And so one of my stickers was a parody of the old Chinatown poster with a man replacing J- Jack Nicholson. And my line was, "Forget it, forget it Jake. It's Burning Man." That's <laughs> sort of like when you have your bad time at Burning Man, just remember that mantra: "Forget it, Jake. It's Burning Man." That's 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 the way it is.
0: As a professionally successful person who makes a living with their art. What's your take on the art that you've seen on the playa? Inclu- I'm talking about like the really magnificent art, but also the outsider art. What's your take on what you see there?
4: I think a lot of it is quite brilliant. Uh, you know, there's some really incredibly inventive people, and I've seen, I've seen sculptures there that I, I kind of wish were in like uh, like modern art museums for other people to experience because it's just really been wonderful, wonderful pieces and wonderful structures. So I find in general the art to be very inspiring in that respect and I see a lot of great stuff coming out and I remember what was the one, oh Togetherness, that was that great piece in 2001. I thought it was a brilliant sculpture. It was these giant enormous somewhat abstract uh, figures crawling towards each other just about to touch each other but they can't quite touch
1: Togetherness. It was really
4: a brilliant theme Brilliantly executed, a beautiful thing, and I guess I really set it on fire, but I was like, wow, it's <laughs> It's like, I'd like to see that, you know, at the Hirshhorn Gallery in Washington, D.C., as opposed to some of the other uh, art they have there, which is, you know, it's, I, I thought this was better. <laughs> so I see a lot of great stuff like that.
0: Well, in that theme of togetherness and almost touching, what do you think of Dickie? Is that art? The Dicky Box?
4: Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's, that's a, that's a great, uh, that was a great art piece. Uh, I thought it was a, it just was such a brilliant idea. It was his first time at Burning Man. That's how he spent Burning Man, not experiencing anything, uh, or, but being, you know, part of the experience. So it was both like in a way, in a sense, he didn't like physically experience that way, but he experienced it through this experiment. And I thought that was really, really brilliant. And, uh, I've since, uh, uh, I've become a pretty good acquaintance of his and he's a very interesting guy. Yeah, he is, yeah. he really
0: is. Yeah. Okay, in all these years that you've been going now, what have you learned about yourself and what have you learned about the community?
4: Let's have a drink. <laughs> what have learned about myself? I've learned about, uh, you know, just, I think, uh, as I said, the primary thing I was talking about before is just the overall awareness. Uh, about that. And uh, letting go of judgments, you know. Try to be as as unjudgmental as possible. And just experience. Oh, that's the other thing, too. I've learned to try to experience things in the present more. I remember coming back one from One Burning Man, and I was like, oh, okay, now I'm in my car camp, and now I'm driving on freeway camp. And it's like, (laughs) you know, when you're a Burning Man, you're visiting this camp, you're visiting this camp. Well, you do the same thing in life. You visit this thing, or your job camp, you're at your restaurant camp, everything. You can, you know, this this the city of Los Angeles. We're just setting up camp. Okay, our tents have more solidity to them, but it's just people setting up camps, and so that's what Burning Man sort of makes me reminds me of is that you know because it's like a city camp. It sets up and then gets swept away, you know, afterwards, and we pick up all the, pay, pay, the all, all the pieces. And about community, and just uh, how. um it's I guess what what it is it's how communities or sub communities work is like this sort of organism that depending on how people are feeling, and how people are doing and how they're experiencing and what they're bringing against to the table, uh, sort of builds that community. And in general, the community at Burning Man I find to be uh, pretty uplifting. I mean that's that's been my experience.
0: Yay. Yeah, let's give <laughs> a big one for the community. Sure. Okay. Um,
4: and and you know and uh, I think I think majority of people that's their experience too.
0: That was David Silverman, also known as Tubatron, who performs with the LA-based fire conclave, The Phoenix Project. Coming up in the final portion of our show, David talks about the creation and development of his instrument, the Flaming Tuba. We'll also hear what draws David to the playa more than anything else.
1: Потра-та-та-та-та-та-та-та-та-та-та-та-та-та-та-та-та-та-та-та-та-та-та-та-та-та-та-та-та-та-та-та-та-та-та-та-та-та-та-та-та-та-та-та-та-та-та-та-та-та-та-та-та-та-та-та-та-та-та-та-та-та-та-та-та-та-та-та-та-та-та-та-та-та-та-та-та-та-та-та-та-та-та-та-та-та-та-та-та-та-та-та-та-та-та-та-та-та-та-та-та-та-та-та-та-та-та-та-та-та-та-та-та-та-та-та-та-та-та-та-та-та-та-та-та-та-та-та
0: Tell us about your Flaming Tuba and how it came to be.
4: Flaming Tuba. Flaming Tuba, yes. Well, at the time I first thought about it, uh, one of the people at, at Simpsons is, uh, is Anna Maltese. Uh, she's a very good artist and a tremendously gifted fire dancer. Uh, really great, really amazing. And it was just fun to watch her and all her circus buddies go out there and perform. And I thought, well... I'd like to get back, but I don't want to get, you know, I don't want to be spitting fire. That looks dangerous. (laughs) But I was bringing my tuba to Burning Man, and I got this notion of like, well, if it must be some, and when I talk about tuba, I'm talking about the sousaphone, Mm -hmm. the the big bell. Oh,
0: okay, okay.
4: uh, Which is a tuba. That's the
0: one that was on Leno?
4: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Well, as a friend of mine, Ben Jaffe, who runs Preservation Hall Jazz Band in New Orleans, told me in New Orleans, sousaphones are called tubas, and tubas are (laughs) called pea shooters. So I said okay well then I'll call it tuba. Yes, <laughs> right you are. Uh so I, my first inkling I was talking to Anna about it well maybe if we got some wicking and sort of you know shaped it so you could attach it to the top of the tuba you could do that you could dip it in that and so on. And I had I had thought about you know some way you could have propane so the flame would jump but I didn't know much about it. Well she uh, introduced me to this uh construction friend of hers uh Shannon Brown and Shannon I kind of thought, well, have you ever thought of propane? I said, yeah, I did. I didn't really know how to work it. I don't, you know, I'm not like a handyman type of guy. I have this notion. And then, so he fabricated, it. He it. fabricated it and came up with this way of using a, this handle from a roofing kit for roofers who use like small, you know, small cans of propane to like fix like melt tar and things like that. Okay. So that's how that's how it all came to be. So when, so we worked on it. Um, I think when I first met him in 2004. We talked about this and talked about that. And then I, I went online to eBay and found uh, an inexpensive sousaphone, which turned out to be a very good horn, by my surprise. Actually, I remember when I first got it, I tried to play it, and I was like, <laughs> oh, no, I got real turkey. And I said, well, wait a minute. It can't be this bad. And I opened up the... Uh, the valve casings and realized, oh, they have the wrong valves in the wrong slots. That's uh-huh. why it sounded bad. And then I played beautifully. I'm thinking, wow, maybe they didn't know they had a turkey of a horn there. They probably didn't. <laughs> you know, I mean, they, they, they didn't know they had a good horn. They thought they had a real dog. So that was a stroke of luck. So I said, well, this is a good sign. <laughs> and then uh, uh, Shannon, uh, in the beginning, I guess in the early spring, started working on it when he had you know off moments. Um, you know, I, I did pay him, but he, he worked on it, you know, for an hour here, an hour there. And uh, we put it together, and we tried it, and it worked great. One slight problem, though. Does it get hot? Well, what was happening is that he had soldered things, and what we found, the solder that was, he thought he had tested it for the right temperature, but apparently <sighs> solder melted and sort of fell on my arm and my head. Oh, no. But it being solder, there's two things about solder. It's very hot, but it cools off very fast, so it wasn't too bad. Did you get a scar? A slight one. Let's see.
0: Yeah. Here, here. Oh wow! I'll hold it up to the microphone, ladies. It's see? a very sexy scar. Oh, it's not that. Good. Yeah, it see,
4: is. It's a little thing. Like that. <laughs> oh well, thank you. It's my dueling scar. <laughs> it's your trial by fire. <laughs> <laughs> Literally. So you know, uh, well, I'll just wear a hat until all the solder melts away, and that's what I did. I took the Burning Man. We thought we got all the solder out. So the first time at Burning Man in two thousand and five, I took it up. <clears throat> I was playing, it, and I realized, oh, it's still raining solder. <laughs> <laughs> Shit. Oh my God. The rain of sun so uh, uh well, you know, so I just wore clothing <laughs> to protect myself from such a falling uh
0: in fact, debris. we kind of have a uniform now it's like
4: uh, yes i do i i I've, I've sort of figured out this uniform of crazy ass uh boots that are have five inch platforms, kilt uh and whatever top is available sometimes I go very kind of burning Manish kind of cool, uh, you know, open, crazy. Or sometimes you'd put on the tails, you know, to mm-hmm. tie and all that stuff. If we go formal or whatever. But, that, but that's, how, that's how it all started. And so, and I just thought it'd be fun. I had no idea it was going to be as popular as it was, which is great, you know. The other thing I found out too, almost quite by accident... Because my first time out there, I was basically playing at night because I figured, well, that's when you know you would do it mm-hmm. you play it at nighttime, but there's one time I was trying I was experimenting with something and it was daytime, I just wanted to sort of play it in the daytime, experiment with something, and I people started taking pictures of, of me like crazy, and I mm-hmm. said, "Oh well, this works well too I didn't know until I got back and saw some of the pictures how well the fire w- worked in the daytime photographs, Not it well yeah. it photographs well it 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 looks very good against a blue sky, that orange flame against a blue sky works. Well, you know, so they're two different experiences. Almost seeing it at nighttime, it's very brilliant, and it's sort of, and the daytime has a has a certain beauty to it as well. But uh, people really like it, so now that's my art piece. That's my contribution. That's your participation. That's, that's cool. my participation.
0: And so people can find you doing your tubatron with Phoenix Project.
4: Uh, yes, or just uh, or by myself out on the playa. I mean, that's my that's my goal. One of the things I do at the Burning Man is I explore my my interest in in music and there's I, now i have two ways well actually more than that but p- two primary ways is with a flaming tuba a solo and then there's the burning band mm-hmm. which has been a fixture i guess since about 97 uh started out by this guy joey joey Pettigrew, and he started it because he belonged to and i belong to it now a group in uh san francisco called the los trancos woods Com- community marching band Drink. Oh, that's <laughs> <Yes>, right <laughs> And the Los Tracos Band has been around since 1961 They came out of the Stanford band But they came out of Stanford band when the Stanford band was a straight lace band And they inspired oh. the Stanford band to be a crazy band Get out they were Yeah, they were, they were the inspiration for the Stanford band They're a great group of people They just want to play and make music and have fun And that's exactly what I, I just want to play and make music Play the music that I like playing And people enjoy it And have them, you know, enjoy the music as well so that's my that's what I my contribution to Burning Man is 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 music whatever music I can play.
0: What kind of music do you
4: like? Oh, I like the traditional uh, New Orleans jazz. Also, the the songs we play at the uh, in the Burning Band are all sort of kind of fun, happy songs like Happy Days Are Here Again and uh, It's a Long rated Tipperary. You know, just very sort of simple, catchy marches and s- songs. You are my sunshine. Mm-hmm. Let me call you sweetheart. Uh, beer Barrel Polka Things like that I mean I like Other sorts of music too But that's what's Fun to play Especially on the tuba And I try to find out Other groups of people too I'll play anything I'll play You know I'll play Other jazz Or I'll play Other rock Or, or country Or whatever
0: You'll try to find Other groups on the playa?
4: Yeah You'll find people Actually uh, there was a group uh, From Chicago I've got to find If they're coming Called the um, uh, Environmental Encroachment <laughs> And they're, they're a, a band out of Chicago And they're they're like a, uh, a, a a a drum corps, marching band, kind of like extra action, uh, a bit more free form, and uh, but they're a lot of fun. And they met me in I in 2000, I guess it was uh, 2005 when I, and we were out with some of the Burning Band, and we ran into oh let's play with these guys. <laughs> I sort of showed up my fire tuba and. Uh, They were like, oh, okay, (laughs) and then we became very good friends. Actually, that was very interesting. Um, That was a year, of course, uh, that uh, Katrina had hit, Mm -hmm. and we had an impromptu fundraiser with uh, Reverend Billy and Joan Baez uh, at the temple. And I, I kind of just have, again, this is what's, a, to me, great about Burning Man, because I have these sort of accidental things. Because I had marched with them, but I hadn't seen them. I said, oh, David, you've got to meet us, meet us here at 1 o'clock and bring your tuba, man, because we're going to be playing, like, New Orleans music. And you know that stuff backwards and forwards. You've got you to lead us. And I said, okay. <laughs> so so I, I did, basically. I sort of kind of took the, the, the lead in that. Just be, they all know the music, but they, they needed that, 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 uh, you know, that, that New Orleans bass line.
0: Okay, let's wrap this up because I know you have to go pretty soon. So, um, there's a couple of things I just want to ask you. I got plenty of time. Oh, you got plenty of time. Yeah. All right, for Burncast, yay. Yeah. All right. Well, then, I, I do have a second question, and I'll follow up on the music then. Yeah. Do you think the. Because I was surprised to hear how much of your kind of music you're fine or your style of music that you like, is on the playa. Um, it seems like there's a preponderance of dance music. Do you find that there's diversity of music?
4: If you look for it, yeah, I mean, of course, there's a, there's a lot of the the, 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 the kind of the, the burning techno music, you know, at those clubs. But I think there's a lot of live music, uh, and it's sort of like in hidden pockets. And actually, that's something I hope to explore before I go out get out to the playa this year. I want to try to get in touch with more acoustical musicians and just see where they're at, just because I love to play with them. You know, the daytime, you know, I'm playing my fire horn, but... It, but it'd be great to play with somebody else, even just like a duet or something like that. Actually, it was fun. Uh, last year, I was standing in line. Oh, now I was standing in line. Uh, for the uh, people waiting for ice, I, I went to the center camp area, and I just played for them. Because you know? I thought, that'd be fun. as While well. yeah. we're waiting, may as well have it. Instead sort of like fire and ice. or something. cheesy. i got to get my bad jokes in every now and then. You've got to keep pitching. And this guy came out. Uh, with a banjo you know? oh, cool. It was great. He was wearing wearing cat and a hat hat. He was in some camp around the center area. Banjovi. and, and, and uh, banjovi. Okay. I had to get mine in. I'm sorry. that's one for you. <laughs> uh, and so and you know, we just started playing and we, and you know he, we knew all the same songs and all I had to do was call out the key and we know what to play. That was something, by the way, speaking of music, when I was at Pixar, when I went to go to Pixar, there was another artist, well, actually, many of the artists there play instruments. Pete Doctor, Docter, uh, who's director on Monsters, Inc., and we were collaborators, uh, he comes from a very musical family, and he plays mandolin, violin, and string bass. And there's a guy there, Bud Lucky, isn't that a great name for an animator? Yeah. Uh, older guy, he's now retired. Uh, he's been in animation, like he was in animation for 50 years. Uh, he designed... Uh, a lot of the, uh, the design, Woody, and, you know, he's a really great guy. He did a wonderful short film where he wrote the music and played it on the banjo. Very good banjo player. That's where I learned how to play, uh, you know, uh, traditional jazz. I mean, I knew how to play it. I was practicing with records, but with him, I actually learned how to do it, uh, just playing along, and then I had one of those epiphanies. Ah, now I know how to do it. So, so uh, that's what I learned. I learned that if I have the chords, or I, a lot of the songs have similar... Structures. You can sort of figure out the chords. You can just tell the way the melody is going and going, what the chord is approximately, and you can get pretty close. And there's always a thing, too, in jazz, well, if you're wrong, just go up or down a half-step, and you'll get it right. <laughs> you'll hit one of the notes <laughs> in the chord. <laughs> so that's, 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 uh, that's what happened to me musically. And then on the play, you know, I developed further. I think I brought my tuba by f- the first year, 2001. I brought it the very first year, and I heard about the Burning Band. I didn't run into them. Second year again, I try to catch them. Third year uh, I was there in 2003, I was at uh, the camp I was at. We were having a sake party, and they just walked up. They were just sort of serenading from camp to camp. And I jumped into my camp and brought out my horn. And I said, <laughs> come along with us. I said, okay, and that was it. And then I was I was with a Burning Band for the rest of 2003. Then they told me about the Trancos Band, and I met those people. This is Okay, that's the thing about Burning Band, getting back to that question. I have met so many other people thanks to Burning Man, you know, outside, and then had recreation with him outside of that. I mean, it, I wouldn't be this involved. The fire troop, if hadn't been for Burning Man. I wouldn't be with the Los Woods Community Marching Band. Trink. Trink. Uh, <laughs> uh, if it wasn't for Burning Man.
0: So how has Burning Man changed your life?
4: Uh, it's enhanced, I think, different aspects of art. that don't have to deal with drawing. But inspire drawing, because you're getting more exposed to different... Uh, and different types of art, and you're and, uh, stimulating the other parts of uh, my artistry, I guess, certainly through music. I played a lot more music thanks to my associ- association with Burning Man, meeting different people and playing with them outside of Burning Man.
0: I think most people would be surprised that you're a musical person knowing that you're more your career is more on a visually...
4: That may be, that's true, that's, that may be, but what I was, actually, I was trying to get at is in an animation, there are so many people in animation that have musical talent, and I think that's because animation is a, you know, deals with time, it's a fourth dimensional art form, like music. It's, it's time, it's rhythm, it's subdividing time, it's divide, you know, it's breaking down of time, and I think because of that, people who have an interest in animation have an interest in music, also in mathematics, you know, there's a lot of people in that. And uh, they go hand in hand. Well, you know, uh, and uh, you, a lot of people at at, uh, at at Film Roman that play, you know, guitars and trumpets uh-huh. and things like that. And Nancy Cruz plays saxophone. Nancy. And uh-huh. uh, you know, and Joe Wack, great character designer. He's a terren- terrific banjo and fiddle player. He plays old time music. He's great. And up at Pixar, you know, Pete Docter and. Yeah. Then, uh, Bob Peterson, who's a co-director there now, he plays trumpet. And Bud Lucky, you talked about, he played banjo. And there are other people there who played piano. And we had a whole band there. We had a, there was a famous band called the Firehouse Five Plus Two, which was a Dixieland revivalist band, starting in the the fifties, the early fifties. They were formed by artists at uh, Disney Studio. Uh, so, I, as I say, there is a connection with uh, cartoonists and artists and and musicians. They they often are not exclusive.
0: A confluence of music and visual art. Yeah, That's cool. Yeah,
4: yeah.
0: Okay, do you have any advice for the Virgin Burner? Somebody come for the first time?
4: Yeah, um, do read the handbook. Be prepared for harsh conditions because you don't know what you're going to get. It could be just beautiful days all the way through. It could be hot and cold. It can be dusty. It could be rainy. I haven't had one of those, but it could be. I don't think it's going to be that this year. <laughs> Unless something wildly changes in the weather patterns. Um, but do read your handbook. You know, be smart. Water things like that. Lotion, lotion and water, two things. Keep your feet covered in case you may fall victim to, you know, falling apart on the playa dust, which is alkaline. Uh, don't take anything too, too dear that you, you know, anything you take to Burning Man, I say, you know, be prepared that it may get get messed up. And I take uh, the, the my flaming tuba with knowing that it has to be sort of, you know, I'll have to take care of it and all that sort of thing. And there's another tuba that I sometimes bring, but it's sort of my beater tuba. Don't forget a bicycle. Yeah. Again, another one that you don't, don't, uh, aren't too serious about and just be open. Now, remember that burning man, uh, it's your experience. It's what you bring to burning man that makes it good or bad. So if you're open to it, I think you'll have a wonderful time and then there'll be those bad times. <laughs> be prepared for that, but just sort of open, open yourself up to it and, uh, take, take that wonder and, uh, I mean, keep your wits about you, have some common sense. And try not to get hurt. It really sucks to get hurt at Burning Man. Have you been hurt? Uh, no, not, 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 not really. No, I never have. And I, I've, I've known people who have been. And it's usually through uh, <laughs> something exuberance. <laughs> Somehow you thought you were invincible and you just didn't think about that. Yeah. You know, when you have an accident, that's a way of the universe saying to pay attention. Yeah. So just pay attention. Yeah. And you probably won't have uh, an accident. Hopefully.
0: So now, do you have any advice for the jaded veteran burner?
4: Uh, jaded veteran, yes, uh, very similar. Remember, you. It, Burning man is what you make of it. To say Burning man has changed and that's why you do not like it anymore, I think is a mistake. Because what do you mean it's changed? It's it is what it is. People come there. They bring their stuff. Uh, Yes. So so what if you can't? Oh, we can't take firearms here anymore. Well, there's forty thousand people. What do you expect? You know, when you have under three hundred, yeah, you can do that because you can probably make some rules. But uh, forty thousand, you know, well, maybe we should should ban firearms. You know, but uh, but don't blame that on what experience you have. It's again, it's what you make of it. It's it's whatever little path you sort of weave through these uh, uh, this maze of camps and people and so forth. If it's too crowded for you, well, I understand that, but. I don't know. I've been there for when I first was there it was 23,000. Now it's was 40,000. I don't know the difference because you know, I don't meet them all. <laughs> I don't see every 40,000. And back then I did see every 23,000. I saw who I saw, and there's all this real estate where there's nobody. So if you want to get away from it, you can definitely get away from it all at Burning Man.
0: Is there anything else you'd like to say before we wrap this
4: up? Uh, let's see. uh well, yes, look for me under the flaming tuba, and call me Tubatron, if you like, or call me David. I don't care, either is good, <laughs> and I'll draw Simpsons for you, sure, why not? What? I oh, will, okay. yes, but don't ask me all the time. <laughs> I'll be handing out stickers. Yes, yes. I try to to hand out as many as I can this year. So ask me for a sticker. (laughs) Okay.
0: Thank you very much. This has been a lot of fun coming to your home. Thank you.
4: Thank you very much. I've enjoyed it. Thank you. Oh, yes. And Mm. I drink scotch on the playa.
0: Oh. Just so you know. Okay. Thank you. (laughs) Bye-bye. Bye. Let me try
1: that again.
0: You have been listening to Burncast, a podcast spreading the flames about the art, culture, and community of Burning Man. For more information, visit our website at burncast.net. To contact us, call the Burncast Hotline at 775 775- 363 5861, or click on the My Chingo Recorder at our website, burncast.net. A very special thanks to Lecter of NoSpectators.com for hosting these podcasts. <laughs>